Welcome to South London Hardcore. My name's Jack McEnroy. My co-host is Steve Walsh. Hello. This week we're rounding up some assorted plaques from around South London. There's some official English heritage plaques and there's some unofficial ones. There's plaques on benches, all kinds of plaques. There are a few audio issues in this episode, but it's minor. Don't worry about it. Just wanted to let you know that I know. It goes on for about 10 minutes, unfortunately, and then it's all great after that. The genesis of uh, the idea for this episode came when one day I got a rather alarming Facebook message that said, uh, I'm really sorry to hear about your friend Steve. And I said, um, <laughs> what, what do you mean? <laughs> um, and and you said, said uh, we all are. <laughs> <laughs> so I said, what do you mean? He said, oh, I've seen, the, I've seen the, the plaque on the bench in Ruskin Park. Steve Walsh, hello, and, and goodbye. Um, <laughs> and I had to hastily say he, he's not dead. Um, he just moved. <laughs> <laughs> he's moved to the EU. Um, yeah, so listeners will remember, Stephen. Uh, well, you'll remember when it was. I can't remember. It was about like, three years ago. Yeah, I think 20, 2017. So I guess it'll be four years this year. Mm. Um, you left. We did a local news roundup as you were leaving, and we put a, a little plaque up on a bench. In um, well, Russian just quickly, Park. just so it doesn't appear like a massive act of ego. <laughs> And also to give you credit for a, a wonderful uh, gesture that took a lot of, of work and effort on, on your part, you uh, ordered, received delivery of, went out armed late at night with tools to attach your plaque to a bench. <laughs> <laughs> was told by your wife you can't do that because you do have to climb a fence, carry a drill, or you probably get arrested. Um, and then you attached the uh, brass plaque that you'd arranged in my honour, uh, rather than memory onto a bench in Ruskin Park and it was lovely and the, the photograph is available as certainly as, as um, episode art on, on that particular episode um, yeah it's a, it's a lovely lovely gesture yeah I mean it's nice that you refer to it as brass or whatever was it, is that how you remember it <laughs> rather, than, rather than like a kind of brass coloured plastic get the invoice it's like brass effect we never promised yeah. you brass Mr Jack Mr. Uh, I don't know why you're complaining <laughs> It's also, you can see the picture there, Steve, but you can also see it on openbenches.org where, uh, so there's a website called Open Plaques as well, which we've used to draw some of the information for this week's episode. Uh, it's a user-generated database where people have gone around just taking pictures of plaques and one guy, has, when you click on the person who uploaded the picture of the Ruskin Park bench, the guy's obviously just gone around Ruskin Park taking pictures of every plaque you can see. And... I mean, he's, this guy's done thousands of plaques all over the place. So, like, shout out to this anonymous person whose name I didn't even bother looking up before we uh, <laughs> started recording. I've been spending a lot of time in Battersea Park lately, and there's loads and loads of plaques there. Like, every bench has got a plaque almost. There's a whole row of benches that have a plaque saying, Donated by the Friends of Battersea Park. I mean, do you need to put that on a plaque? Is it not like just a given that as an organisation called the Friends of Park Name, you're going to be doing things like putting benches in? Also, like, if it's a collective effort like that, there's not even an, an ego boost. It's not even a thing where you can, like, anyone, I could walk through Battersea Park and go, yeah, I'm a, I'm a friend of Battersea Park. I did that. Like, there's no way to sort of, you know, you don't need that sort of general recognition, do you? When you said yeah. that, that Battersea Park was full of plaques, so I just assumed that you'd gone over middle of the night with a drill and just yeah. 
thousands of Steve Wolf packs. <laughs> so as you can imagine, there's a lot of, um, you know, beloved mother plaques and uh, he loves this park. Yeah, we all love it, mate. That's why we're here. Bit of imagination. Do you know what I mean? Uh, but I came across one. It was by the IAPP, let's put it up, Raising Asbestos Awareness Together. Right, this is just in between the plaques for like people's dogs and like some old couple or whatever. Remembering those whose lives have been affected by asbestos, the living owe it to those who can no longer speak to tell their story for them. What do you think about that, Steve? I mean, asbestos awareness is good generally. I don't know if like, like surely uh, a park's the worst place to sort of remind people about asbestos awareness because like the open air is the least dangerous place for asbestos to, to do its, its work. Yeah, but maybe the idea is that these people that were so affected by it, the park was the only place they were safe. And maybe not. <laughs> I thought, but figure Steve, I saw that plaque and I thought, oh, I'll do, I'll, I'll bring this up and Steve will go on a massive diatribe about how working class people have been sort of, asbestos is just one in a long line of things <laughs> we as a club <laughs> the, least, the least we could have is a bench. But uh, <laughs> situation, I? Well, no, uh, I just think, like, find a building where loads of people died from exposure to asbestos. But then again, if you own that building, you're probably not going to allow that plaque to be put up, are you? Put up a plaque in a park with an arrow pointing towards a building and incriminate it in its part in poisoning people through asbestos. Um, Steve, one final bouncy park plaque, if that's all right. It's for a sure. dog, right? It's got a paw print. It's good that it warns you because sometimes you can read these plaques. You're quite moved and by the end it says like, you know, a beloved friend, a loyal companion. And then at the end you realise there's a dog and you're like, oh, okay. Um, right, this one says, in loving memory of Elmo. This is the message, right? And it puts your plaque to shame. If someone would write something like this about me when, I've, when I'm dead and gone, it, I'd be quite moved. Someone asked me if I missed you. I did not answer. I just closed my eyes and walked away. Then I whispered, so much. Isn't that moving, Steve? That is moving. That is moving. And if, if people want to go to the festival garden in um, Battersea Park, they can see that there. <laughs> I don't think I need to. I think you're emotive reading. Is all they're going to need. It's a good one, isn't it? It's a good yeah, one. Yeah, it's very good. Actually, You're right, sorry. it does sort of uh, disgrace mine. If you could pop back to uh, Ruskin with a chisel. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, uh... yeah, yeah. <laughs> Someone asked me if I missed Steve Walsh. Yes, I suppose. <laughs> I reply. In, in a way. <laughs> we first started talking about doing this episode early in lockdown, if I remember rightly. So yep. you know, when the only activity you could really do was go on a long walk and look at a plaque. I mean, that was the most you could hope for. And <laughs> one day I went and had a look at um, the calf from Aha's Take On Me video. That's quite exciting. It was closed, obviously, but still just have a look at it from across the road. So I'm getting my, my uh, face right up against the, uh, trying to look through the letterbox and see, uh, oh, look, that's where the fella was drawing the comic. But as I said, you can look at these, you can Google most of these plaques and find pictures or go to uh, Street View or something. But if you are in Upper Norwood, going past 14 Highland Road, 
you'll see a plaque for Margaret Lockwood, the actor, Margaret Lockwood CBE, who lived there from 1922 to 1938. It's an English heritage blue plaque, so we're starting official. <laughs> I would just say as an indicator for people, it's listed as Upper Northern Ears, strictly speaking, but like locally, that's very much Gypsy Hill that that, that plaque is in. So that's a better sort of starting point if you're looking for it on a map. British India. And she moved to London at the age of four and spent most of her child, in her own words, Steve, on the slopes of Gypsy Hill. Much like yourself, right? Well, not your childhood, but you went, you knocked about there, didn't you? Uh, it, it's funny, just looking at the map, uh, I had like friends who lived on Central Hill Estate and our mutual friend, uh, Jim Hall, had a place, mm. sort of, uh, sort of, it's sort of place where Margaret Lockwood's childhood home would be equidistant between Central Hill Estate and Jim Hall's uh, flat. I don't know how deliberate that was when Jim was buying the place, but... <laughs> so she lived on three different addresses on the same road, 18A, 30 and 14, which is where she lived the longest. Um, and actually, that's the only one that survived the Blitz. So that would be the key part of the decision, wouldn't it? I always find <laughs> when they put plaques up on... This person was in, did something in the building that stood on this site. Yeah. I mean, it's just nowhere near as good, is it? <laughs> you know, you're looking at this... You're looking at this plaque that's indicating something from like 200 years ago and it's on like a glass building generally as well i i i don't enjoy lived here as much as like born here is the ultimate isn't it born here even died here is is good because they're the specific sort of mm. things but like lived here worked here is a bit sort of wishy-washy for me in terms Ooh, of uh, steve or the dreaded stayed here yeah the worst stayed here i mean you know, looked at, looked at this spot in 17... Like, come on, guys. You know, we're not that desperate for plaques. Is it embarrassing if I admit I'd never heard of this actress until you suggested her for uh, this this episode? No, because I know her from the... I'd seen The Lady Vanishes, obviously. Um, obviously, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> You're a cinephile. You're a cinephile. So I knew her, you know, I knew the name from there, but it's a long time ago, isn't it? Uh, her heyday yeah. of the 30s and 40s is a long, old time ago. But she does seem to have done a fair bit of work. Like, I'd never seen The Lady Vanishes, uh, and since then I've obviously watched a number of her films. But, like, it, as a sort of, I wouldn't have considered her a, a household name, particularly, you know, for someone who's worked with Hitchcock and Carol Reed and whatnot. Yeah, well, you know, she was like, uh, she was a big star. Um, she was the lead, you know, the lead in a Hitchcock film, well into Hitchcock's career. I mean, it's 1938, The Lady Vanishes, but that's not early Hitchcock by any stretch. You know, that's after things like The 39 Steps and obviously had a whole silent career before that. Um, the Wicked Lady, uh, in, uh, which was made in 1945, was the number one film at the British box office in 1946, and she's the, uh, the lead in it. Um, as you say, she worked seven times with Carol Reed, who um, is from South London, and we've uh, talked about on the show before, and we'll talk about in future. But we watched a couple of her films, Steve, didn't we? A double bill of we complimentary did. films, The Lady Vanishes and Night Train to Munich. And what did you think of them, Steve? I, I really enjoyed both of them. Uh, made me watching them made me think of because I was like, why am I enjoying these so much? Why are they tickling me in a particular way? And it made me think of that line from uh, the Go Between, 
the past is like a foreign country. They do things differently there. And it was that thing of like, oh yeah, these films are so removed from my cultural experience. They're like something from another place because they're, you know, so different sort of social attitudes and just, just how people carry themselves and behave. Um, but yeah, I thought they were both uh, really interesting. And interesting as well, just seeing how they've, I found them very sort of taught in terms of structure and, you know, very sort of linear, seemed very sort of like three act. There was, a, there was one point where I was watching Night Trains in Munich and I was like, this feels like the midpoint of the, it feels like the, the, there's a hinge here. This feels like the, the rest of the film is going to tip from this point. And I paused it and it was on like 47 minutes. It was pretty much like halfway through the film. And I was like, yeah, this, they, it just, you know, just seems very sort of firmly structured, which, you know, can be bad as well. But um, yeah, I really enjoyed both of them. Yeah, I think it's the kind of, the Lady Vanishes is a solid like second tier Hitchcock film. Um, you know, it's not up there with Psycho and North by Northwest and stuff, but it's in that like solid second tier. It's like, he's such a master, isn't he? I mean, it's so obvious to say, but you know, it's just so well made. And the, and the same with the Carol Reed film as well. It's like just so well put together. They share the same writers, Sidney Gilliatt and uh, Frank Launder. And there's quite a big um, connection, Steve, isn't there? Well, what do you imagine were my favourite bits or my favourite elements from these two films? Uh, the model, the model photography. <laughs> it, uh, do you know what? I really enjoyed. Just stuck when uh, Lady Vanishes sort of fired up. I hadn't sort of like braced myself for the fact that it was a film from the thirties. And and as you say, mm. the opening shot is this like really sort of blatant model shot of a of a train in motion sort of moving into a station and and i was like oh of course like there wasn't green screen or anything like that you had to sort of build things but i found it really sort of charming and i tried to sort of place myself at that time they would have because i was like is that a crane shot initially when i saw it i was like did they have cranes operating cameras because such a high shot and i was like oh no that's just a camera over a table (laughs) There was a Twitter prompt not long ago saying, if you could change one special effect shot in film history, uh, you know, what would it be? To make it better, obviously, what would it be? And that was the first thing that came to mind was the opening shot of The Lady Vanishes. This is before we were talking about doing it. Is you get this, it's nice, isn't it? You get this kind of the camera moving over this um, uh, Switzerland, isn't it? This like Swiss. Sort of alpine uh, setting and the railway. Yeah, yeah, you know, the snow and stuff. And like, yeah, you, I guess you know it's a a uh, model, but you know you just go with it, and then it comes down to this car that's quite clearly just a toy car on a piece of string. Even but even before that, as it sort of pans down, just oh, there's like, no people moving, is there? There's, there's people. people like... There's people, and I'm like, well, they're just plastic. Like, why would you have people standing there? And like, fair enough, that's probably the best. You know, you're not getting detailed uh, model molds made and whatnot at that point. And as you say, then the car. And I was like, but I uh, even then, even when the car sort of like half bumped along, clearly being pulled on a string, I was like, I found it quite charming. I, I was like, this is the best they could do, really, isn't it? That's you know. Yeah, I quickly revised my answer as well. The shot I would change is, do you know the episode of Forty Towers, the rat, and they're oh, after yeah. this rat, and then suddenly it appears at the end in a biscuit <laughs> tin, and it's like 
it's like sooty or something. Well, rolling rat, I suppose. It's terrible, and it just takes you out of it completely. And that's like forty years on from. Uh... You need to do a George Lucas on that. Go back and you know Basil shoots first or whatever. No, what did you enjoy the most, Steve? Probably um, going back to the quote about the past being another country. The maybe the Charters and Caldecott. Stuff. Charters and Caldecott. Just me. As soon as they turned up, I was like, yes. I'm very much because you, you know I love Woodhouse. They just felt like a couple of Woodhouse characters mm, that had wandered yeah. into this film, and like immediately I was just taken with the fact that they're just like, uh, just as I say, silly like characters, but they just paid off uh, uh, across the film to the extent that like obviously we watch Night Train to Munich where they feature again, but since then I've uh, you know quite independently I've gone off and watched a Crooks tour, which is essentially a Charles and Caldecott. Uh, spotlight film where the two of them are like the lead characters get caught up in more uh, espionage in in Europe. Oh yeah, it's oh, good. Love it. It's, oh, it's, it's uh, again, it's really really silly. There's a, there's um, probably my favourite bit in that one. Just to sort of cut away for a second, there's a bit where the villains are trying to kill Charters and Cordica in a uh, a uh, hotel room in Turkey. And the trap they've laid is they the, the the gangsters own this hotel and they've got one room where the bathroom is marked bathroom, but when you open the door, it just it's there's no floor and it just drops into the Bosphorus and the people are killed and carried away immediately. Uh, so uh, Cordicott goes off to have a bath. Charters goes to find him because he's been warned that they're in danger in the hotel. As he goes into the room, one of the villains has checked. He's opened the bathroom door to see if they've fallen through. Uh, Cordicott goes over, slaps him on the back and goes, ah, oh, Charter's old man, Fault drops him down into the river and kills him. And he's distraught because he thinks he's killed him. Uh, calls ah. out in anguish and then Charter's answers from the other side of the room. Uh, and there's this great bit where they sort of realise what's happened. And uh, it's, it, it, it's like, it, yeah, it's full, it opens up to nothing. It's just a Bosphorus. And um, he, one of them points to the bathroom door. It, it, it says bathroom. And uh, the other one goes, yeah, I mean, mm. sh- it should say Bosphorus. <laughs> <laughs> uh. But uh, even in uh, Lady Vanishes, uh, I think probably my favourite bit in the whole film is where uh, I think it's uh, Charters uh, goes out goes out of the train towards the end to sort of... Because there's this wonderful celebration of Englishness stroke Britishness and exceptionalism and, you know, very much we do things the right way, these are people are doing things the wrong way. And basically, Charters goes off to, t- goes to step off the train and tell off the people that are trying to kill them. And as he steps off the train, mm. he gets they shoot at him and uh, he just looks slightly annoyed. And then the camera pans <laughs> out and he's been shot through the hand. But he makes... He, he, he completely no-sells getting shot through the hand, comes back on the train and sort of says something like, Brutes! Just like, yeah. you know, just completely shrugged it off as uh, them just being impolite rather than uh, actual villains. Wonderful, wonderful stuff. Yeah, yeah, I agree. That was the best stuff. That's it. It's the humour, isn't it, in both of the in both of the films that kind of makes it. I think, you know, especially in Night Train to Munich, I found, I don't know, maybe the first third, first half, I sort of thought it was a bit kind of, I don't know, perfunctory. It kind of felt a bit. Also, I mean, the film is like, it's got a title card at the beginning that says, like, September 1939. Like, the film came out in 
August 1940. Like, <laughs> what were they filming it like at the time? But you know, some of the like Nazi stuff. I mean, it's very. Um, it, it's sort of not, not aged well, has it? I did think the the bit at the start there. There's that montage, isn't there, of various sort of Nazi rallies and bits and pieces, and they have an actor playing. There's that montage at the beginning with various bits of footage of the Nazis intercut with like other bits that have been particularly shot. And uh, I did sort of laugh out loud because they have a guy playing Hitler doing sort of Hitler-style rants. And it's almost note-perfect, like Norm MacDonald's version, when he does his bit about... Um, do you know the bit where he's on the last ever Letterman? And he's like, Russian, 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 Russian. And it's, it, it sounded so similar. I was like, I wonder if uh, Norm MacDonald based his Hitler on this guy from Night Train to Munich. Maybe. Like, Norm MacDonald looks like a man who loves his films. Margaret Lockwood was on Desert Island Discs in 1951. Have you heard it, Steve? I haven't. I didn't even think... This is where our different instincts kick in. Like, you, the first thing you would look for is, have they ever done Desert Island Discs? Um, I don't know if that was my first thought. But has Captain Bly ever done Desert Island Discs? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he should have done. Um, <laughs> what would you... I'll tell you what you need on a... <laughs> <laughs> What's your luxury item? Um... But, you know, I've got BBC Sounds, the um, BBC podcast and radio app. So I typed in Margaret Lockwood and it was there. And because it's so long ago, they don't cut the music out because it's all public domain. But, I mean, talk about a desperate selection of of songs, Steve. She picks two boating songs. <laughs> two boating songs. Just Green say you don't like music, she picks. <laughs> like, Green Sleeves is great, isn't it? But... Greensleeves, Ride of the Valkyries, something from Swan Lake. I mean, some opera thing. The thing I mean, is, though, you like have to remember at that point, there's only probably about... Yeah, there wasn't. There's 35 records commercially available, in it? And three of those are versions of Greensleeves. So the interviewer at that point is obviously Desert Island Disc creator, you, Roy Plumley. I was going to say, are you looking for me to finish that line, but... I am because I said Plumley and my dad said I think it's pronounced Plumley and I forgot to look up what the correct pronunciation was. <laughs> um, but I found kind of I came to an interesting connection there. Roy Plumley and or Plumley <laughs> and Margaret Bo- uh, Margaret Lockwood they both end up in Putney Vale Cemetery. Ah. Do you remember we went to see do, Roy Plumley's grave? Seeing, didn't we? Yeah, we probably walked past Margaret Lockwood without even realizing the, the relevance. No, because she was uh, cremated, so they just there may be a plaque, um, but there's no break, there's no grave. So, Steve, what plaque are we having a look at next? So, as a kid, I remember seeing a plaque for Robert Browning on Southampton Way in Camberwell, and not really knowing who that was because he's not. Although you know he is clearly recognised as a great poet in. Uh, the history of English literature it wasn't a household name, not like Dickens or Shakespeare, is he sort of thing. But I ended up studying him for GCSE and really enjoying his work. So suddenly it really sort of came home to me. And then through doing the show, I realised the plaque was there because he was born in Camberwell. And it was quite nice to sort of feel this sort of link or affinity to this guy whose work I ended up uh, really enjoying. So I kind of wanted to talk about uh, Robert Browning on that basis. But in my research, I stumbled across uh, a couple of amazing. Uh, things that I'm going to try and uh, share my screen just to show you 
Um, Just to clarify, you mean with me, not with the listener. <laughs> listener, look into your mind's eye. <laughs> what I'm saying is, if the listeners can't see what I'm talking about, it's their spiritual failing that's causing the problem. So, But I'm going to show you, and we'll describe it uh, in detail for the uh, people at home. Uh, could you enable screen sharing, please, host? Uh, yep. This is also a good time for us to do our unofficial uh, sponsorship shout-out, where about a week or so ago you introduced me to the idea of Jamboards on Google, which I'd never heard of, and I used for this episode. And hopefully I'm going to use them now in a way that will really enhance our experience and the uh, show as a whole. So you can see my Jamboard now, is that correct? Yeah, great. So this is a feature of Google Drive um, where you can, uh, you know, move sort of post-its about and pictures and stuff. Really useful for like outlining and things like that. And Steve, I see you've really fully colour-coded it. I've, I've absolutely leaned into the sticky note feature and aligned things. Yeah, I've tried to sort of use them thematically and whatnot, but you can also just pop photographs onto there as well. So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to show you the location of Robert Browning's uh, blue plaque on Southampton Way. Uh, I don't know if you do oh, you yeah. know Southampton Way at all. Like it was really it was very well. Oh really? Very well. Brilliant because like I I basically grew up like literally five minutes away uh, on the state just uh, off Camborough Green um, and went to a summer scheme. So the photograph we're, we're showing, uh, that, is that, that road going down to the side? Basically, in the end of that road, there's a school that did a summer scheme that me and my sister went St. to. St. George's. Like, sorry? Yes. And like, I think, if I remember rightly, this dry cleaners on the corner used to be a video shop uh, that we were members of. But I might be thinking of another oh. corner on Southampton Way. But you, uh, Sorry, the, the, the picture's gone out of focus now. But the important thing is you can see the blue plaque under the Southampton Way sign. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you know your area well, do you remember the blue plaque at all? No, I don't remember ever noticing it. No, I also I used to work in Robert Brown in primary school. Ah, so <laughs> <laughs> so like that, that seems that overrides it, doesn't it? Connections, connections. So there's the blue plaque. If I just draw your attention to the wall in between the chicken shop and the dry cleaners, can you make out yeah. that grey block there? Oh, there's another plaque, is there? There is another plaque. And I've, I'm going to show you a photograph of that plaque because this suddenly opens up a whole new um, vista of Robert Brown appreciation and indeed uh, the sort of the legacy spot of, of South London hardcore. So this is the Robert Browning plaque that is on the wall underneath the other one. So in memory of Robert Browning... Born 1812, died 1889, who lived here. I spoke as I saw a Robert Browning quote there. Now then, I'm going to ask you, if you can read at the bottom there, uh, presented by... Can you read it? Uh, South London something. I can't, Steve. The quality's... uh... The South London Immortals Club. What? What? The South London Immortals Club uh, commissioned and mounted... This concrete plaque to Robert Browning. I don't know when. Um, so, obviously, you know me. I've seen that. What have I done next? 
I mean, I imagine you've Googled the South London Immortals Club. Very, very much so, very much so. And the only piece of evidence I can find for its existence, but it is a good one, is... Uh, oh, wow, yes. that's a great bit of um, oh, isn't uh, letterhead, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, just the fact that, like, this organisation existed. Um, so I'm showing Jack a letter with the letterhead uh, South London Immortals Club and the club motto, object to honour the, the old immortals and create new ones. Looking just at this one bit of paper, there's a lot to take in. Obviously, we have the chairman, W. Margery. He's listed. The Honourable Secretary, Miss Ruth Height. Seven uh, Road, is that? Got her, got her home address. Uh, wow, this is amazing. Yeah, I mean, this Seven Mostyn Road, Brixton, SW9. But interestingly, that's printed onto the page, but scored through. So clearly there's been a schism at the South London Immortals Club where Ruth Height is no longer the honor, honorary secretary. Um, and then along the sides, we've got a list of the immortals that they're looking to celebrate. Chaucer, Marlowe, Shakespeare. Yeah, I can see there's a little bit of overlap there between what we've covered over the years, isn't there? But also a couple of interesting names that we haven't uh, looked at. Mm. So this letter is sent to, it looks like a Mr. Hobby. Um, and it's uh, from Stanley Dink uh, Dinkum, the vice chairman of uh, the South London Waters Club, or as he's put it, the SLIC. Uh, oh my gosh, is this real, Steve? This is genuine. This is, uh, this is genuine. Yeah, we're not. We're recording this on April first. <laughs> well, well, we're recording this on the third of April, and this letter was sent by Stanley Dinkum on the eighth of April, nineteen forty-seven. Wow. Yeah. He's the vice chairman at this point of the uh, South London Immortals Club. And it's basically him writing to someone, enclosing various uh, press cuttings and, and details that they've collected as a club. Uh, probably trying to get it sort of stored somewhere or archived somewhere. Um, so obviously, mm. I've Googled uh, Stanley Dinkum. No sign online of his further activities. I Googled Miss Ruth Height. Uh, no sign of any further activities as far as Google's concerned. And I saw W. Margaret and I was like, oh, this is the annoying thing is obviously with Stanley Dink and we have the full name. With Ruth Height, we have the full name. With W. Margaret, we've only got W. Margaret. And I was like, what's the odds that I'm going to find who W. Margaret is? Anyway, I found who W. Margaret is. <laughs> nice. He's listed online. Uh, there's various sort of uh, records of him. Uh, essentially, he was a philosopher and eccentric, is how he's uh, described. Born at 202 St George's Way, Camberwell. He was also the founder of the London... Oh, just around the corner? Yeah, yeah, very much so, yeah. Yeah. Uh, founder of the London Explorers Club, which was uh, essentially his version of the Pickwick Club from the Pickwick Papers, where I'd imagine they would wander around London and record what they found there, various people and things. You know, like we do. <laughs> <laughs> wow, this is incredible, isn't it? It is amazing. Um, he he uh, seems to have written a lot. Unfortunately, he seems to have written a lot on eugenics, which is uh, not oh my God. perfect. But uh, yeah. <laughs> we might be we might be talking about that a bit more shortly. Uh, the only book yeah. of his I could find available for purchase on Amazon. Oh my gosh! Was the Pickwicks of Peckham being the book of the London Explorers Club, which was published on uh, January nineteen thirty eight. Uh, there's only one copy available on there, and it's uh, £786.13, not including postage and packaging. So, 
you know, unless we're going to club together, maybe we, we start a um, GoFundMe or yeah, something. Yeah, if you go to southlondonhardcore.com, <laughs> click the Amazon link. <laughs> we, we only need people to spend, what, I mean, uh, realistically, 15, and, but to be 15 honest, grand like, and we'll have enough to buy it. We Like, we should, as South London Hardcore, we should own that book. Like, we have a, a claim on that book. We are yeah. the, the spiritual heirs, not the eugenics, but of uh, the South London Immortals Club. You know, if if yeah. if we've done nothing else with our efforts with South London Hardcore, it's been an attempt to immortalise, you know, famous South Londoners and even our friends who are South Londoners. It's been an attempt to sort of, you know, collect information, collect stories about South London and immortalise them on the internet. So, mm. but it's nice to know that we, you know, it, and also just interesting that we've been doing this for so long and I'd never heard a whisper before about the South London yeah. Immortals Club. Well, I mean, you can imagine 80 years from now, someone's <laughs> doing some kind of like, oh, what would it be in those days? Like a kind of hologram TikTok sort of a thing. And they're like, <laughs> they're like, well, I've just discovered this podcast, Southland and Hardcore. Um, I just want to go like, back to... It's just to, like what uh, we're doing. <laughs> I just want to go back to hologram TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> well, like the equivalent of, you know. <laughs> <laughs> just uh, sounds like uh, Partridge trying to... Uh... Get some money out of hologram uh... TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to stop uh, sharing my screen now because you don't need to see the rest of my notes. But um, isn't that an amazing discovery, courtesy of my curiosity about the recognition of Robert Browning on Southampton Way? Absolutely, because I—I'll be honest. When you said Robert Browning, it's maybe the least excited I've been about <laughs> a topic. <laughs> And it's ended up just being the best one since, you know, since Kubrick. <laughs> so before we get on to another kind of serious plaque, Steve, here's one that I'm going to spring on you. It's outside St. Thomas's Hospital. And this is one I w- happened to walk past, which, you know, it's nice discovering things on open plaques, but it is nice to go and, you know, we're both fans of the podcast 99% Invisible. And they've got a kind of mantra, I suppose, almost always read the plaque. And I've taken that to heart and I've read some boring ass plaques um, <laughs> since. But uh, this one was uh, in loving memory of the victims of human BSE, brackets VCJD. Always in our thoughts for the Human BSE Foundation. Wow. Again, Steve, I thought, I, thought, I thought you'd be going off of your asbestos rant. <laughs> <laughs> talking about like <laughs> contaminated meat and our other ruling classes of uh just once again well no at least uh, no was it gummer who tried to feed his kids burgers live on tv to prove that it was fine there was yeah a, who sorry i think it was was it john selwyn gummer was he the health minister at the time there was some some tory mp yeah. who sort of like was trying to like push burgers into his kids mouths to uh poison them live on tv to reassure people and stop the the British beef market from collapsing. The thing that surprised me most about that plague just is the fact that I don't. I suppose it's a thing of like, yeah, that the B the BSE crisis is a a, a sort of historical fact. Now it's in the past and recognised as a thing. But like because it's in my lifetime, I kind of think it's weird that there's a plaque for it because obviously plaques generally tend to be about sort of like a certain amount of years after a person has been born or died. I think there's specific rules, isn't there? Something. Well, I mean, if you're talking about English heritage and stuff, yeah, but you can just sort of throw up what you want. Yeah, in a way, we have, you, haven't if we? If you, 
yeah. But like, it's interesting to sort of think of an official plaque uh, that's been put up to record something that happened within my lifetime. But then I, I suppose there's, um, I think there's already like a memorial up to COVID victims, isn't there? Yeah, there's all these hearts, isn't there? On um, oh, I forget where it is, man. It's on a wall somewhere. Yeah, and uh, some someone posted a picture of it and and with the uh, saying uh, one of these is for Peter Sutcliffe because there's one for each victim. So um, I don't know. Make make of that what you will. But I was going to say, Steve, about um, yeah, you know, it is in our lifetime. I remember I was at school at the time, um, concerned about the beef burgers at school, sort of a little bit. But my sort of abiding memory really is we had a, the geography teacher hated me, right? I don't really know why. Um, Can yeah, I, I give didn't you a listen list? and stuff. <laughs> but like, you know, I wasn't interested. I didn't listen, but I didn't sit there chatting or anything. Like I wasn't horrible or anything like that. Um, I remember her saying that she goes, you got the top mark in the class in this test. And I was like, this doesn't sound right. And it turned out it was the guy sitting next to me who got it. Yeah, she got our names mixed up. Luke Edhouse, yeah. And she goes, ah, oh, because she called me Ed House. I said, that's him. Um, and she says, ah, oh, I tried to, she goes, I tried to mark you lower. Because, <laughs> anyway, so, so, well, what was the BSE thing? Was it about 97? Yeah. So if you're saying it's the Tory minister, it would have been just before the election, maybe. I don't know. But whenever it was, I was in about year nine, you know, the third year. And, our geography homework, we could do anything we wanted relating to BSE, she said. It was a, it was the hot thing in the news, isn't it? And this, I guess, I don't know if it relates to geography, but I guess it no, does. No, it definitely doesn't, um, does it? Um, I don't know, but it was like, with the farming and stuff, isn't it? Farming is part of geography when you learn it at school. I guess, yeah, yeah. So she said you could do anything, you know, write an essay about whatever. You could do anything about um, BSE. I mean, she said anything. And I... <laughs> I drew a picture of a cow with cross eyes. And, you know, I'm in like the third year in secondary school. And she just, she went mad. She was like, oh, you know, <laughs> no pun intended, but she was, she was livid. Then. Did you um, still get the highest mark so... in the class? <laughs> she refused to mark it. She sent me home to do, it, to do it again. But when I saw that plaque, which is, you know, not far from the school I went to, actually, it did make me think of that. And I don't think that's what the... Families intended. <laughs> uh. So, doing my research, I found a plaque for Charles Vickery Drysdale, uh, and uh, it's in East Street in Warworth, which I thought was interesting. Ooh. Yeah, and it's 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 kind of waste. Well, it's absolutely my fault. So, I misread the plaque. I thought that <laughs> said. This Always was... misread the plaque. <laughs> <laughs> I thought the flag said the first uh, birth control clinic in uh, mm. the UK. And I was like, oh, wow, that's significant. You know, that's an important thing that we should probably recognise. And it's his first clinic in the UK. So immediately it's sort of not relevant because he's born in France and it just, I guess it just happened to be, you know, there's no particular geographical relevance to that being the location of that place. And that place isn't particularly significant. So, you know, it sort of taps into what we were saying earlier in terms of, you know, these things where people put up plaques for, like, I don't think you need a plaque for 
this guy who was born in France opening a birth control clinic on East Street. If it was like the UK's first, by all means. But like, mm. as far as I'm concerned, this is just another. So I thought it was like a significant like moment in the history of birth control in the UK, but not really. No, but it did lead to because you sent me a message. We were you know messaging, picking these plaques, and you said the first birth control clinic in Britain. So I googled Blue Pack South London first birth control clinic in Britain. It goes, yeah, Marie Stokes, twenty eight Central Park, Upper Norwood. You probably tell me it's Gypsy Hill now, won't you? Um, <laughs> promoter of sex education and birth control lived here, eighteen eighty to eighteen ninety two. And, you know, she was a pioneer in birth... She opened... I think she opened the birth, first birth control clinic and it happened to be in North London. And, of course, we were on the wrong page. But it did... There's a lot there with Marie Stokes, isn't there? People just quickly, know first the name. of all, it's interesting mm. that we both looked for, like, South London-related birth control plaques and found them. But then on, like, even the slightest close inspection, you sort of realise... The Drysdale one, he's born in France, and this is just one of many birth control clinics. The Stopes one, she's born in Scotland, I think it is, and like lives there as a child. And it's this thing of like, she's living there for like six years as a child in in Upper Norwood, and like without being horrible, that's not where she's forming her opinions on birth control that then shape her destiny, is it? Yeah, but just to sort of counter that, I mean, she moved there straight after her birth, is yeah, my understanding. Yeah, yeah. And she lived there from, like, as a baby until she was 12. Right. So, uh, but I know what you mean. I mean, yeah. the, the, the thing wasn't, the the, um, the the clinic wasn't there. And there's probably a plaque where the clinic was. Right, in there, yeah. So I started doing some research on her. Uh, she was the first woman to get a PhD in botany. She wrote some pamphlets called Married Love, Wise Parenthood, Radiant Motherhood. Great names for pamphlets. Um, And then I started reading more and I wrote down the definition of a complicated legacy. Uh, I would end with that, right? And then it's just not complicated at all. She was just out and out bad, Steve. (laughs) Have you you read? Did you you look into her? Uh, Yeah, I did. Um, You know, she was a life fellow at the Eugenics Society and it wasn't just a kind of... Um, you know, sometimes you maybe wonder, you know, people have lots of bad views or did have in the past or whatever. And you wonder if it, you know, it taints their legacy, obviously, but you wonder if it had any real world effect, really. But in this case, it like certainly did. Um, she just, she essentially opened uh, birth control clinics to stop people that she considered uh, being unfit for parenthood. She advocated for the compulsory sterilization of, and I quote, the inferior, the depraved, the feeble-minded. Um, people are thriftless, unmanageable, appallingly prolific. She was anti-Semitic. She was opposed to mixed marriages. She thought mixed race people should be sterilized at birth. Um, and she fell out with her son because he married a woman who was short-sighted. I mean, she's obviously like a, an absolute wrong one, isn't it? That is what I'm saying. You can't pull down a plaque. But though, with you? that one, it feels, wrote, like, it feels like she's like, I guess, like, I can't draw the line here, can I? She once wrote to a deaf father um, of four deaf children that he had brought misery into the world. She makes reference to people who are racially diseased and and generally unfit for parenthood. I mean, it's just like an absolute horror show, man, of like... The, she was just, it's just, it's not like 
it doesn't seem to be about protecting women, about anything about overpopulation or anything. It is just like out and out, like racism of every form, classism. She was just an absolute rotten human being. Um, so you probably know the name, Steve, from the charity, the Mary Stopes. Um, I was speaking to someone yesterday who was saying they were going to get a vasectomy at Ma- uh, a, Mary, a Mary Stopes. And I said, oh, it's not called that anymore. It's called MSI International since last year because of her <laughs> awful, awful legacy. Um, but yeah, anyway, she died at the age of 77 in 1958 in defiance of her own prediction that she would live to 120. Substandard genes, I imagine. <laughs> Interesting that the name did live on as like a byword for birth control and uh, sort of, you know, that area of things for so long. Like, it it takes like 2020 for someone to sort of go, oh, we shouldn't be using this monster's name to promote this idea. But, you know, this plaque went up 10 years ago. <laughs> Um, and do you, that plaque wouldn't go up now, would it? No, I wouldn't think so, but I'm stunned that it went up 10 years ago. Yeah, but I mean, so it hasn't so much changed in the last two or yeah. three years even. Yeah. But why wouldn't it go up now, Steve? What would you, why do you think it wouldn't go up now? What is their motivation is really what I mean, Blue English heritage. What What's the, the reason it would go up or the reason it wouldn't go up? Yeah, like it went up 10 years ago and they knew about the, the eugenic stuff. Why wouldn't it go up now? Maybe it would go up now just on the basis that like you sort of look at, it's not even necessarily a moral evaluation, but like are these people so ineffably famous or renowned that you can't ignore their legacy? So you kind yeah. of have to recognise yeah, yeah, it. Yeah. That sort of thing, isn't it? Yeah, I think I don't think it goes up now. But what I'm sort of driving at is I don't think that English Heritage have had a kind of awakening moment. I feel like they just don't want the hassle. Yeah, yeah. Do you know what I mean? You put up a kind of slave trade person. But, you know, because you open up your wallet, you've got a picture of a white supremacist in there, Winston Churchill. Yeah. Like, like there's no... You go and examine Winston, Ch- Winston Churchill, and I, mean, I don't need to tell you this, do I? But, like... It's worse, and, yeah, <laughs> and the same. Yeah. You know, you, you you pull out the same quotes, uh, but that stuff. It obviously it serves a purpose for like, um, you know, there's an agenda, isn't there, with Brit- with English history? I mean, it's quite blatant at the moment with the Tories about how it's used and stuff. Not that we want to necessarily go down that road now, but no, it's just it was that I go on for about an hour for. That's where you get your uh, your asbestos rant that you were hoping for earlier. <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh so that kind of leads us nicely steve into another plaque this is one i walked past at 100 lambeth road formerly number three durham place somehow uh for captain william bly who you know i, I everyone knows the mutiny on the bounty don't they various forms of the movies right i think so like i think even if you don't necessarily know the ins and outs of it if you say captain bly if you say mutiny, it's going to ring a bell for people isn't it yeah, so I watched, probably almost 20 years ago now, I suppose, I watched the 1935 version with, of Charles Lawton and um, Clark Gable and the 1962 version with Trevor Howard and Marlon Brando. And I don't think I realised at the time there was the one from the 80s, which I think is 
It's also well loved, is it? Hopkins and Gibson. I don't know, to be honest. I've never. I'd imagine so. I sort of mainly know it from the trip, um, you know, like uh, Rob Brydon and Steve Coogan doing (laughs) dueling flies. (laughs) Yeah, I don't think I've watched any of those film versions, to be honest with you. Oh, that's great, man. The, the, uh, The first two. I mean, I think there's another one in there somewhere as well, but the Clark Gable and Charles Lawton one, as you can imagine, like, is, like, really good. And also, like, Brando, like, he's, like, you know, brooding on the boat, etc. <laughs> it's interesting because, like, in my head, because I hadn't seen the films, I guess, or sort of, like, knew the story well. In my head, it was, uh, they go out on his voyage, Bly is awful, so the crew turn on him chuck him in a boat and uh, go off on their merry way because he was just being horrible. But then you sort of read about it and it turns out he was uh, particularly nice for a, a, a sea captain at the time. There was a thing where someone said like he would, uh, what was it? He would uh, he would whip where others would hang and uh, sort of, you know, tell off where others would whip. He, he was like, he'd always like be a stage nicer than the equivalent uh, captains of the kind. And, like, as it turns out, even the mutiny itself, I think the thing was, I think it was, like, the majority... The, it was something like the uh, a significant like, number of them stayed with him. So it's not just him turning out, but it's him and a fair few. In fact, it was a point where there were, like, four people loyal to him that had to stay on the bounty just so they could maintain the ship. But they were sort of kept under guard on the ship, so they were loyal to him. Right. But went with the mutineers, and when it comes to trial, eventually in the UK, he has to sort of like uh, plead on their behalf. They're sort of rounded up with the rest of the mutineers and put on trial, and he's like, "Him, him, and him were fine. <laughs> they just went along to hmm. operate the sails." Um, so yeah, it's a really interesting uh, story, and and obviously. Um, you know, as I say, it's probably unfortunate for him that he's become this sort of... In my head, I saw him as like this villainous tyrant who was going around just sort of like, you know, whipping and uh, mistreating his crew. But yeah. apparently he was quite nice and just happened to get a bad crew. And even like Fletcher Christian, uh, who was the leader of the mutineers, they were friends up to a point. Like apparently, as he's being put on the boat, uh, Bly says to Fletcher Christian, you've you know, had my children sit on your lap. You know, our family are friends. But Fletcher Christian's like, off you go. This is no time for emotion. Yeah, I kind of, I've always kind of assumed that, you know, coloured by the Charles Lawton uh, portrayal. You know, I was reading some of this about him being okay, but, (laughs) you know, for me, like, he whipped where others hung. I'm like, oh, oh, I'm only getting whipped. This is lovely, (laughs) this fella. (laughs) <laughs> um, I don't know, man. Having um, it's difficult to know, but you know, there's a lot of like we'll never know kind of thought about it, isn't there? But you know, after he got dumped in the boat um, with the other fellas, he navigated three and a half thousand miles without maps in like an open boat to get to Timor which without is, uh, uh, instruments as well, just f- purely yeah. through celestial na- navigation. Like, I mean, that's extraordinary, amazing, isn't it? amazing. He got. He's buried at um, St Mary at Lambeth, which is now the Garden Museum next to um, next to Lambeth Palace. His tomb there is also made from code stone, which I think we've talked about on the show before. 
code stone is also the material that's used to make the lion on Westminster Bridge. And uh, code stone was developed by the code family who lived and operated their factory in Lambeth and was a particular method of taking uh, bits of stone and mixing it together to create a sort of sculptable version of uh, stone. Uh, Incredibly sort of hard wearing. I mean, you look at that lion on Westminster Bridge and uh, it still carries, it it allows you to do very sort of detailed features Mm. with stone without having to carve. You can sort of mould it rather than carve. And and apparently um, Bly's tomb in the, the Garden Museum is another great example of its use. On the English Heritage website, this is a uh, official blue plaque. It says the plaque went up in 1952, just before the condition of a positive contribution to human welfare and happiness was written into the awarding rules. <laughs> um, so yeah, how do you explain uh, Stopes? Come on, guys. <laughs> but I think in this case, but this would be a case where it doesn't necessarily. It's so long ago, and it also just doesn't have to be considered celebratory. I don't think. No. Whereas the Marie Stopes one. Definitely, you know, I started to think, oh, maybe it's um, maybe it's just a kind of marker of something historical rather than a celebration. But you know, promoter of sex education and birth control lived here. There's only one way to read that, isn't there? Really, it's not just like a matter of fact. It's like, no, we've deemed this person worth celebrating. Whereas with Bly, I almost feel like it could go up, and I didn't see that and assume we were sort of saying this is a good guy. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. As I say. You know his place in popular culture for me has always been that of a villain. It's only sort of reading about it that's given me any sort of reason to to question that at all. But I still think he, you know, would be, you know, blue plaque worthy just in sense of like, you know, he's a historical figure who absolutely, you know, commands a, a place in mm. cultural memory. So, Steve, you said, right, we're going to do Stanley Unwin. So great, I looked him up. Right, born in Northamptonshire, lived there his whole life, died there. So I'm like, that's weird. Um, I thought we did. I thought we weren't doing uh, tenuous plaques. <laughs> anyway, I listened to Ogden's Not Gone Flake, which is yeah. the Small Faces album, which comedian Professor Stanley Unwin, yeah. who come up with Unwinese, the uh, fictional language. You can see why I chose him. He's a fascinating character, isn't he? <laughs> Uh, Google it again, and I was like, oh, he became a sir, and he was also born 30 years earlier than previously listed. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, give him a blue plaque so, for that alone, isn't it? <laughs> so go on, Steve, tell us about the actual Sir Stanley Unwin, different guy altogether. <laughs> yes, the Did Stanley you know, Unwin... was that a setup? <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't, but uh, I think uh, you, I, I think I just assumed you'd find both and discard the one from Northamptonshire. <laughs> <laughs> I, was like, uh, I was like we're, we're like nearly 200 episodes in surely at this point he realises that uh, the, the show's called South Island Hardcore so the Stanley Onion that I always talk about was born in Lewisham and has a blue plaque on Handham Road and he was a publisher and uh, his publishing company put out works by people like Bertram Russell uh, they randomly I'm not quite sure what the sort of backstory was but they randomly published Fantastic Mr. Fox by Roald Dahl, but not any of the other Roald Dahl mm. books. Although um, maybe Boy and Going Solo later, but none of the other kids' books. They made their name, really, by publishing The Hobbit by J.R.R. Tolkien, which is sort of, you know, fun of itself. But um, the interesting thing that I really enjoyed was that uh, Tolkien submitted his uh, manuscript to various publishers, and Stanley Unwin... 
paid his son a shilling to read the manuscript and report back. <laughs> and uh, his son was like, uh, yeah, it's good. And they're like, okay, we'll publish it. Uh, and obviously it becomes a smash hit. That he published all the Lord of the Rings books and go on to publish. It's amazing when you look all the sort of like related. They just milk it for everything it's worth. The the, the other interesting thing is uh, Tolkien submits the Silmarillion to them, which is essentially the sort of the backstory and folk tales around the world of, of Middle Earth. And um, initially, when it's submitted, they reject it for being too Celtic. But uh, as soon as Tolkien dies, it gets published because yeah. <laughs> obviously at that point he's not making any more of these books, so we have to make sure they they all get out. So yeah, the um, the world owes uh, the existence of Lord of the Rings, not really, but let's pretend for the sake of the show, to um, a kid in Lewisham being given uh, a shilling by his dad. So he got paid to read that book and that that book alone. Might have done others as well. Who knows what he's rejected, yeah. but certainly was paid a shilling to read the manuscript for The Hobbit. Well, it really was a non-fungible Tolkien, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> I can't... I've, I've been trying for about two weeks to try and make that work as a joke, and I can't, then. <laughs> I knew I just had to say the phrase and it would be enough. What's going to be funny <laughs> is, uh, as you say, when that, that child of the future is looking at his uh, hologram TikTok and you make that joke, they'll be like, oh, my God... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <even then. laughs> yeah. uh, so Steve, I'm going to show you this plaque, right? Roy Watts KT, which is some kind of Sir Roy Watts KT is like some kind of knight. Yeah, I was going to say. I don't know why you need. Of... I don't know why you need both. Um, so this is. I was on a walk in Battersea again, and I ended up at the river, and I ended up at this plaque. And I just want you to tell me if this is ironic or not, Steve. Right. In love and memory, Sir Roy Watts, chairman of Thames Water 1983 to 1993, and a freeman of the City of London, who tragically drowned near this spot on the 27th of April 1993. Is it ironic? Yeah, that is ironic. If you're the chairman of Thames Water and you drown, that's definitely ironic, isn't it? In the Thames, of all places. In the Thames. So yeah, if you go to, I guess, Steve, you'll probably put some of these pictures of these plaques and stuff on the in the show, stuff on southlandhardcore.com, won't you? Uh, yeah. Just paste sure. it underneath. Yeah. 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 If people want to see that plaque, they probably don't. <laughs> what I will definitely share is uh, the the Browning plaque and the South London Immortals Club letter, just so people can appreciate what a good letterhead looks like. So, Steve, we've got one more plaque to talk about in uh, on Shad Thames, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. I mean, this my choice here does... Uh, sort of exposed me to charges of hypocrisy because earlier on I was sort of like, oh, you know, these plaques where it's not not lived, not died, not born, just, uh, you know, was here for a while. And this is very much worked at. You know, he, this is not... It, 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 it's a plaque for, for Derek Jarman, the film director, who was uh, born in Middlesex. And even if you sort of look at the life of Jarman, I think most people would think the most significant location would be his home in Dungeness and the Garden that he made there. So it's arguably not even the most location in, in Jarman's own life. But he did live and work for a while at this location in Shad Thames at Butler's Wharf. And the thing that sort of 
I found quite engaging about it was the fact that this location did inform his work, you know, and also it's a really interesting sort of snapshot for me of this time where Shad Thames, Butler's Wharf, it's the sort of late 70s, early 80s, and Docklands and that sort of area is, you know, not regenerated yet. We're still a few years away from uh, the Long Good Friday, Bob Hoskins bringing over the Americans to get it all sorted. <laughs> so at this point, you know, these are largely sort of abandoned warehouse spaces that, you know, have artists move in and, and use that space to as, as gallery space and, and creative space, which is what Jarman and, and other people did. I guess the sort of the sort of the keynote of, of, of his work from this time and, and this place would be Jubilee, which uh, was filmed, you know, partly on location around the area where Jarman sort of took advantage of the fact that you've got genuine bomb sites and blitz rubble and, and also, you know, it's the late seventies, so general sort of urban decay around to sort of create this atmosphere and, and space for the the action to unfold did you watch jubilee i did yeah so i've you know he was there from 73 to 79 jarman and you're happy to have a jarman plaque up aren't you steve absolutely yeah yeah just to clarify i don't want people to think you're anti-jarman <laughs> i watched jubilee and i hated it i thought it was dreadful steve <laughs> did you like it have you seen, just seen it before uh i hadn't, I hadn't. seen it before uh i did I did, it's hard, I sort of enjoyed it in moments. I didn't enjoy it as a piece. I didn't think it was a good piece of cinema. But there's certainly enough sort of bits in there. Uh, and also just, I quite enjoyed uh, the premise. The first sort of ten minutes did draw me in. The idea of Dr. D bringing uh, mm-hmm. Queen uh, Elizabeth I into the future to see things and then the fact that one of the first sort of things they see is uh queen elizabeth ii in her jubilee year as the film uh came out uh being mugged and killed randomly uh on the street so i thought that was quite a striking sort of you know it's that yeah. punk thing isn't it like that the, the, a lot of the punk sort of ethos and imagery is so sort of clunky and on the nose, isn't it? That's the sort of mm-hmm. the issue you have. There's not there's not a great deal of of subtlety to it. Um, but I thought you know Rich O'Brien as D, I thought was like he's just chewing the scenery, isn't it? Yeah, he's great good time. actually. Yeah, Very yeah. good. Um, and I say they were nice, and it, it, it's also I say it's an interesting sort of snapshot of the time where you've got a lot of the. Um, I guess it's Blitz Kids, sort of Adam, Ant and Susie Sue sort of wandering around playing little roles or in the background. So it's, you know, I suppose the obvious thing to sort of compare it to is is the Warhol films where you have scenesters essentially from that time. So I think it's an interesting sort of cultural snapshot and good to have that recorded, but certainly not, you know, settle down for a cup of tea and some butter toast and uh, watch a nice film on a Sunday night. Yeah, I, I thought Toya Wilcox is one of the worst performances I've ever seen in the film. <laughs> Awful. It's just people like waffling on about like, they're waffling on about art and culture and life and stuff, aren't they? And it's not in a pretentious way. It's like, it's like meant to be, you know, it's meant to be light, isn't it? Yeah. But it's, it's just not funny though. I don't know if it's meant to be funny because it's not funny in any way. 
I, mean, I hated every minute of it, Steve. I just found it such a drag. I mean, I don't like punk as a, yeah, as I'm, yeah. you know, on the record. But it wasn't just that. I just found it was just like everything. It was just so phony because the acting was so bad. You know, it reminded me a bit of, do you know the Alex Cox film Straight to Hell? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it's got like all it's got loads of people in it, like you know Joe Strummer and yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. And it's another sort of thing where it's just so boring. You're like, wow, this exists. I can't believe right. this exists. I'll put this on. You're like, oh, it's painfully boring. So I I almost watched another Derek Jarman film just so I could watch one that I might like, <laughs> and then I might say something positive. But I didn't. I ran out of time. Maybe you know Caravaggio. I've been interested in seeing. I mean, I would recommend if you want like. Some Jarman that I enjoyed. Uh, he wrote a book called mm. Chroma, uh, which is a sort of sort of his his thoughts and feelings. It's basically him writing about his life as he dies of AIDS, but he does it through this exploration of different colours. So he takes you through how these different colours, um, you know, affect people emotionally and, and whatnot. But at the same time. It's very much a, a personal thing as well. It's a, that, that's a really uh, good book, I think. And The Garden of Dungeness as well. Dungeness is worth a visit if you get a chance. Yeah, what's the... Um, what I remember when I was at Waterstones, there was, we had a book called Derek Jarman's Garden, didn't we? Yeah. Um, what, what is the idea that you can go and visit? Well, basically, like, so Dungeness is a, sort of a fascinating space anyway. So you've got... There's a nuclear power station there. Mm. Uh, and then you've got this sort of flint beach uh, that looks pretty amazing and, like, it's on the coast and it's all very... You get these sort of steel grey styles up ahead. But then you've got these sort of these sort of rows of cottages close to the beach where people lived, including Derek Jarman. And Jarman's garden was, like, one of his sort of final life's works, essentially. Again, as mm. he's dying, he sort of retires to Dungeness and plants this garden, which obviously lives um beyond him so um yeah it's it's really it's a really interesting place to go just because as i say it's got this sort of liminal sense where it's on the beach and you have uh these sort of like quite beautiful sort of quaint cottages uh but you can stand at a certain angle and you're looking at those and in the same line of sight you've got this hulking nuclear power station and all the death energy that emanates from that Oh, right, so you went there, yeah? Yeah, I went there a few years ago uh, with um friend Matthew, uh, who'd been before and was fascinated by it. And it is the sort of place that does sort of, I was going to say leave a mark on you, but it's more it sort of lives with you. Like, I can think about it now, and it still mm. sort of evokes those feelings of, um, you feel like you're very sort of distant from everyone, even though there's other people around it. It's, it's a very specific sort of place to go to, I think. So, and is the garden still... Is someone running it still? Uh, it's still maintained. I'm not sure exactly who lives there, but you can, like, I don't know if it's, like, signposted necessarily, but, like, it's sort of, like, it's not a big place as well, so, like, everyone knows hmm. kind of where it is. And obviously, you know, you can't sort of wander around. Or maybe you can. They might do, like, the sort of open gardens tours at certain points, but you kind of don't need to, like, you know, and hmm. you probably feel weird to walk into it. But just what... And, and as a... Um, just that space as well where the the houses are um because there's a lot of people sort of like it's a big sort of community for sort of artists and creatives as well so 
there's lots of things with sort of like driftwood that's been sort of reclaimed and used in various sort of things. So it's an interesting, interesting place to go to. And that's not in South London. What a way to end, Steve. What a way to end. <laughs> don't, don't go to Shad Thames, whatever you do. <laughs> well, you go to Shad Thames now and uh, you're looking at a very different place to what Derry Jarman would have been dealing with at the time. Very little blitz rubble left around, is there? We'll be back with another episode on plaques, I think, Steve, one day, won't we? Absolutely, yeah. We've got some in the, we've got some in the bank. Um, and if you go to southlondonhardcore.com, you can obviously find all our old episodes where there's there's an episode where we rounded up uh, 10 statues, wasn't it, from around yeah. South London. That's a kind of nice complimentary piece in a way, isn't it? Also, there's a, f- a few episodes where we chose our own people to award plaques to and you made some very nice looking plaques and we hung them on walls so they're good Mm -hmm.